All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? I'm trying to hold on to hope because I can't just go on and on every week, twice a week, talking about my missing cat, Boomer, who I loved, who I had for a long time. He is not back. And uh, I don't want to lose hope. And I, and I know, like, look, I'm not trying to bum you out, but this is a lot of you are curious. Those of you who listen every uh, week, you know Boomer, kind of. At least you, have the, you had expectations out of Boomer to at least talk occasionally. Uh, it's still very difficult. It's been a, a week and a day. And, and I, again, I appreciate the stories of cats returning after years, months, weeks. Uh, some hope was diminished recently because I, I noticed there's a lot of signs up for other missing cats, which could mean that there's a, you know, a coyote pack in the neighborhood. I don't want to think that. I don't know why the coyotes didn't take the crazy stray cat, who I now seem to uh, emotionally blame for uh, for Boomer's disappearance. But I'm trying to look on the bright side. I'm trying to appreciate the time I had with the guy. I uh, had him a long time. And I'm even trying to mythologize him a bit. I find in my mind that if he did encounter a coyote, perhaps it would be uh, the trickster spirit. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to frame it like that. Perhaps Boomer is on some sort of heroic journey. Perhaps Boomer is like, you know, he's he's in another dimension and, and he's being tested at different levels. I, I've never read all the books about the hero's journey, but I, I do know one thing. One thing I've learned about hope in the last week is it's very interesting how when you want something to return or someone to return, the hope of their return uh, is 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 painful. And you you know one thing, that if they do return, at least for a day or two, you're going to be thrilled. Everything is going to be okay. And I, I kind of get the whole Jesus thing because of Boomer's disappearance. I mean, you know, to, to, to say you're going to come back after your dad's a hell of a trick. And yeah, he laid that down. And, and I think that to, to say that and you're going to come back and then take people with you, to a better place is a, is a hell of a thing. And that I can see where that hope of, of, of that return uh, is powerful. And yes, I did just, uh, I did just analogize the entire spectrum of Christianity to, to my cat uh, disappearing uh, a week ago, Friday. I did do that because I believe that the feelings are the same. And that I, I know some people trivialize feelings that some people are like, Hey, it's a cat. You know, it happens. Yeah, I get that. And, and I, I am certainly accommodating that emotionally. But uh, you got to look on the bright side. It does, it does happen. I don't know if he'll come back. I'm losing that hope. But I think I'll hold on to that hope and continue to mythologize my cat, Boomer. Uh, and the sad thing is I just ordered a bunch of Boomer buttons because he was becoming such a, a presence on the show. So I'm going to have those. I wish I wish I would have ordered Boomy Lives buttons, but uh, I look. You know, I, I'm sad, but I'm not. I'm not miserable. There is an absence here, but that horrible little fuckface cat is out there uh, filling somewhat of a void. And and maybe Boomer is living with a nice old lady. And I talked about that. Yeah, I'm not. See, what I'm avoiding is eulogizing. You know what I mean? I'm not going to eulogize. I'm going to hang on to hope. Either way. With or without Boomy, I've become a more hopeful person generally. I think it's good. You know, faith is pushing it, but hope I can handle. Uh, the shoot has been going great. I, I'm still not sure how much I should or 
or will tell you about what's going on. But uh, we did finish the first week of shooting on my IFC show. We did put one episode uh, in the can and, and we're almost done with another one that we're shooting on Monday. It's been very thrilling for me, 12 to 13 hour days. Uh, you know, I realize that uh, it's not an easy role playing me, and, and I should have known that. It's never been easy being me to me, but then to act like me being me is, is it's not so much that it's challenging, but it's a, it's sort of a, a heightened uh, bit of a meta bit of business. But uh, I will say that the shoots are going great, and uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, more details as time goes on. Uh, it's very exciting for me. Is that okay? Very exciting? Oh, the show today... Interesting show. Sometimes people ask me to have more black comics on. I do try to get black comics on, but it's not uh, as easy uh, for, for whatever reason, numerous reasons. I don't know what those reasons are, but it's it, the outreach is difficult. Um, but I did have an opportunity to get uh, the creators of, uh, of this new documentary out called Funny Business, which is a documentary about uh, all jokes aside. It's a, a, a relatively... Uh, unknown to me, a comedy club in Chicago that had its heyday, but was really the starting place of, of a lot of black comics uh, that you know that ha- have become famous uh, and and their presence is, is culturally recognized. Very funny fellas. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, on the show today, I have Ali Leroy, who is a comedian who went on to, uh, to uh, help create uh, Everybody Loves Chris. He also worked on Louie's movie, uh, Pootie Tang, uh, and he's got some inside info about Pootie Tang. I did talk to him about that uh, for you Louis C.K. fans. And, and he's also was uh, uh, worked on the Chris Rock show for years. And, and with him, I have uh, John Davies, who was the director and the sort of the force that created the documentary Funny Business. And we'll talk to those guys in just a second. I'm, uh, I think I, I should tell you that I'm throwing away a, a bunch of underwear. I, I feel like that's a, it's a big moment. I think it might be a big moment in other people's lives. I don't know if I'm the only one that has this experience that there, I, I open up my underwear drawer and I realize that I have some underwear, some boxers and some briefs that I don't wear that often, that I've probably had for 15 years. 15 years, maybe 20. What the fuck is that about? I mean, if there's anything you should have some turnover with, it's underwear. How? Why? Underwear and socks. I mean, what needs to happen? I mean, I guess I should be grateful that they're built so well. That is the only thing that is built well anymore in the world we live in, uh, underwear and socks? Because that shit holds up, and you would think that that would be the, thir- the first stuff to go. Jeans have come and gone. Shoes have come and gone. Shirts have come and gone. Jackets have come and gone. But I have boxers that have stayed the course for 15 to 20 years. And I'm just going to let them go out of practicality because I think, Jesus, th- you should move on, man. You got to move on. Even if you like the pattern on them. Even if they're in pretty good shape. Just get rid of them. They've they've had their time. Let them go. You have to let those boxers go. <laughs> Ali Leroy, John Davies. Yes. You are, John, you are the, uh, the director and uh, producer and uh, creator of the Funny Business documentary. Funny Business, a black comedy, correct? Yes. Now I'm asking like as if you're doing a deposition. Is that correct, sir? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Ali Leroy, you were a Chicago, originally a Chicago comic. Yeah. And I remember you, man. Thank you. I think the first time I met you was in uh, New York. Right. Luna Lounge-ish. Y- yes, 
Yes. You had dreadlocks. Oh, I did. I had a head full of hair. <laughs> were... It was all it was all long and Jamaican looking. Yeah, you, you know, you had a mustache going. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I was. I was. Uh, I was being anti something at the time. Sure. sure. Anti haircut. Uh huh. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I like to rail against things, but I pick small things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. A, I'm not going to the barber anymore. Yeah. The hell with that. Yeah, you brought yeah that kind of haircut though. It has it makes a statement. It's unclear what yeah. it is, but it's uh, not the other haircut. Yeah, you're not getting my twelve dollars. That's right. Yeah, but you were doing stand up then, and you were you were hanging out with Lance, and you guys yeah. were. But you were involved in. Weren't you guys part of a, a black sketch troupe at one time? Yes, we were. What was the name uh, of that? Mary Wong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was like we were out. We were out in New York, maybe like in the mid early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you remember when uh, like USA Comedy Cuts and Bill Box Comedy Tonight and all that stuff yeah, was yeah. going on out yeah. there? Yeah, we had we had the group together then, and, and you know it's like a group is tough to kind of keep together when you know you got guys and wives and kids and all that kind of stuff. It's, so, it's uh, hard to keep anything together yeah, with those things. Yeah, it's just hard to you know it's but, better to just stay away from people. Right, but you were like into the writing <laughs> thing, but you did do stand up. Yeah, because I remember the first. Time I saw you do solo stand-up because I associated you with the group but then you know you had your chops as a stand-up yeah, yeah. from before that yeah no I, I, I did it um I probably was doing stand-up uh from like the mid 80s uh into like 97 is when I kind of officially hung it up because uh, I transitioned back into writing right but that's interesting because I mean that's about the same time you know I think I started doing stand-up like full-on in the mid 80s yeah and then, uh, then it never stopped for me because I didn't. Right. Uh, I didn't write. I ju- uh, yeah, I, ju- I just had you know. I mean, really, for me, it was just a real like I had a decision to make. You know, I had a wife and a kid. Smart at- decision. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever beat yourself up for making, for that, making decision, that choice. <laughs> for saying, hey, you know, there's only five or six guys that get to the top. Why not have a job where I get to write comedy, make more money, and do what the fuck I want to? But you know, I, honestly, man, it was it was a serious choice. Like I really enjoy stand up. I, sure. I love like doing that a lot uh but in a very practical way i just kind of looked at okay there's two lines here to be in right you know one is manufacturing product and the other is being a consumer of the product right and i don't you know it's not that i thought i was bad or anything like that i think i'm really solid at you know if you gave me a month i could you know no come no up you were definitely funny hour. but th- it's sort of a more of a, a roll of the dice with your life yeah and uh but you started at uh all jokes aside in Chicago? No, I started way before that. We were doing like sketch comedy inside clubs. I didn't come up through the, you know, through the improv second city route doing it. We came up doing sketch comedy inside clubs. So That's always rough, man. Well, you know, I mean, it made you do a different type of act. You actually had to care if people were laughing. You couldn't just, hey, here's a suggestion. But, right, but were you yeah. working as a feature, though? But, I mean, were you on regular shows? Yeah, I mean, you know. That's uh, always a weird transition. Yeah, I mean, at some point you get past the open mic stuff, and then mm-hmm. you start getting booked. And, you know, I did a ton of colleges and that sort of stuff with the group. And, uh-huh. And also did a ton of colleges solo. So, yeah, there's a lot of work back who, there. Who was in Mary Wong? Um, myself, uh, Lance Crowther, uh, who would go on to uh, do a great deal of work with, uh, you know, not just with Chris Louis Rock, and... we both work, but yeah. with Wanda Sykes. He was mm-hmm. partnered with Wanda mm-hmm. on a number of her projects. And uh, Crowther, how you say it? Crowther. Crowther. Like, like Souther. He was Pootie Tang. Yes, he was Pootie Tang. <laughs> the, the cult classic or yes. debacle, depending who yeah, you ask. Right, right. Wasn't Bernie, was Bernie in that too? Uh, Bernie was not. Not. Yeah, uh, Lance Crowther is is was Pootie Tang, and uh, uh, the the last show I know he was working on, he was uh, on George uh, Lopez's uh, uh, talk show. Oh yeah, uh, was he yeah. writing? 
Yeah, but so I mean, we haven't talked recently, uh, so I'm not sure what his m- most recent project and is. And you you went on, to, you both worked on the Chris Rock show. Yes, we did. And then you went on to create with Chris uh, the Everyone Loves Chris show. Everybody hates Chris. Everyone hates Chris. Yes. Oh, everyone loves Ray, right? right. And uh, <laughs> they hate so, the black guy, love yeah, the white guy. So you've been doing all right for yourself. <laughs> I did okay. Yeah. Now, how did the like? It sounds like the clubs that you were talking about, right. you know, Zanies and the Satellite Clubs, were just the general comedy suburban comedy club. Right now, when when uh, when Lambert, when Raymond Lambert decided to open his club, right. which the documentary is about, all jokes aside, how did that change the landscape? I mean, not just for for black performers, but in general in the comedy scene over there. Well, uh, it, it gave it gave an entire community of comedians a place to work. Because, you know, there were certain comics who who were considered kind of crossover, a little more mainstream, Um, you know, in the early 80s uh, for television. Most of the black comics didn't get the comedy tonight, the USA comedy cuts and a lot of that stuff. Uh, A lot of black guys were like on the Apollo. Right. Doing three minutes, you know, (laughs) of death defying comedy acting and hoping that kind of worked out. So that was one spot. Yeah. you know, there weren't a lot of places. And then uh, there weren't a lot of places where they were. Uh, you know, I don't want to use the word allowed, but there was well, definitely... embraced is the word. Okay, <laughs> yes, yeah, we were allowed to go every place. You just weren't embraced, right? But there was also there's this. Uh, you know, and I get I get flack when you know when I get into these conversations from people who want to insist that there's no color lines in the world, which is you know it's a nice idea, but it's just not true, right? But. Uh, there were there's definitely black comics that play for the black community and then there were dudes there and other comics that were trying to not detach themselves but looking for other opportunities well i mean you actually started out in those other clubs right. i mean guys like dl hughley subject entertainer mm-hmm. uh um, steve harvey all started out in the other clubs and then suddenly when these uh you know when a club like all jokes aside comes along you know they also had comedy act theater out here in la right uh it was like oh shit there's a place where we can go perform for black people and do almost another version of your same act right you know it's not like steve harvey went into that club and did an entirely different act right but it's like oh shit i can actually talk about this from another perspective now right and i don't have you know there's no translation involved right i don't have to explain (laughs) right i don't have to explain any of the reference points i can you know you know do the same act and and get a whole different feeling from it because a lot of these guys you know they were doing evening at the improv and all yeah absolutely sure you know did you do those uh yes i did evening at the improv was it lisa gibbons was the host of mine by the way, <laughs> yeah, we almost bought that clip. Oh wow! And we, what we remember about that clip, and we bought it. We almost bought it for a funny business mm-hmm. the movie is because uh, she introduces you and she says, "Please welcome Allie Leroy." Right. And so you called her Lisa. <laughs> she was like Lisa <laughs> Gibbons. Yeah. Well, it sort of seemed like he got her back. Oh, yeah. They, they, those hosts would come in. I, I did that. That was one of my first comedy shows. Right. And Nancy Wilson. The uh, the jazz singer was was my host, and oh, she wow. fucked up my name. Right, and then the, the the second time I did that, it was the mother from Wonder Years, and she right, fucked up right, my right, name. Right, right, right. It's literally they got there five minutes before yeah, and yeah. did nothing. <laughs> so, so John Davies, what was uh, what what made you do this documentary? Well, I was uh, out in L.A. working with Bob Zamuda on Comic Relief. Yeah. You know, another I had sh- him another, in sh- here. another Chicago guy. I had him in here for three hours. And, and wow. I actually, I actually got that job <laughs> through Chris Albrecht. Chris Albrecht had liked a short of mine. Originally, a, a doorman at the uh, improvisation went into uh, the improv here, and then became the a manager. Right, and then right. became the head of HBO, yeah. and then the czar of HBO. Yeah. He'd seen a short of mine mm-hmm. about a, a blue collar 
uh, barbers working in the south side of Chicago, yeah. flew me to L.A., mm-hmm. said, I think this could be a sitcom following Rock on Fox, gave me money to go back, reshoot it as a three-camera, told me just to shoot six minutes of it, but I shot the whole thing. Wow. And then we screened it for the folks at Fox. At the end of the screening, he says, you know, I love the first six minutes, but I, ultimately I don't think it works. Wow. And so Chris said to me, you know, what, John, what a mistake. I told you just to shoot six minutes. But he liked me, and he said, I'm going to do, do you a favor. Mm-hmm. Now, this depends on if you think working with Bob is a favor or not. But he, <laughs> he put me with Bob. And I was with Bob for six or seven years. And in the course of that time, we did a lot of events all around the country for comic relief. How many times in that relationship did you say this? Oh, come on, Bob. But every That's day. bullshit. <laughs> yeah, pretty much every day. But but actually, Bob and I were like like brothers. We yeah. got along really well. Yeah. And he was very kind to me and, and, and immediately took me in as like an equal partner. Mm-hmm. And we did events all over the country at all these clubs, including Raymond Lambert's in Chicago in 1992. We did a Christmas show there, and Bob performed with a Vanna White, Sinbad, Bob, and me. It was terrible, but we got to know <laughs> Ray that way. And Ray said, hey, John, if you'd like to come back tonight to see what I really do here at nighttime in the club, here's some tickets. So I went back that night in 1992. I think I might have seen Chris Rock. I saw a lot of great people. And so every time I came into Chicago for the next three or four years, I would go to Ray's club. Then I lost touch with Ray, ran into him on the street in Chicago maybe in 2008. Yeah. I still thought the club was going, and he tells me this tale about how, oh, God, John, no, it's been gone. I've had a whole other life. And he started telling me the story, and I got really into it. And the politics of it. The politics of it and how it was closed down when he tried to move it to the northern, whiter part of the city. And when he was done, I was like, oh, shit, I know I'm going to do this as a film with you, Ray. It's a good story. I know all the players in it. I know I could pull it off. And so I moved to Chicago like a couple of months later into a condo I'd owned there for years, and we just got to it. And we made the story, and I thought, I can pull this off in a year. And then after the year was <laughs> over, I said, I can pull this off in two years. I ended up putting in two years and eight months. At this point, people, I think it would be good to break in here and take you to an interview I did with uh, Raymond Lambert, the owner of All Jokes Aside Comedy Club. I met him in Chicago, and he can tell this story better than any of us can. So let's hear from Raymond Lambert, and then we'll get back to Ali and John to talk about it themselves. When you opened your club uh, in Chicago, were you from Chicago? No, I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, originally. Oh, really? Yeah, so I came here to work in securities and investment banking, actually. And uh-huh. I, I met comedians, like, at a school day thing where you talk about what you do for a career, and that's how yeah. that sort of started. Yeah. And Steve Harvey happened to be, uh, Steve Harvey and Rex Garvin happened to be two of the comedians that I met through that process. And what, what inspired you to do, a, uh, to do a club? Because, I mean, what year was that, 90? That's 90? like 91. So, I mean, the, the original boom was over. For the general market. For the general market. Which is kind of interesting you say that. Okay. Yeah. For a general market. But still, when uh, when we thought about opening this room, I had another partner at the time, was uh, James Alexander. Uh-huh. And there were five rooms in Chicago. Zanies. Zanies, Improv, Funny Firm, Catch a Rising Star. Oh, yeah. Laugh Factory. Right. Was in the burbs. Um, but cats like Steve, Bernie, couldn't get booked. Bernie couldn't get booked. Bernie really. Mac couldn't get booked no. in those clubs. In the city of Chicago. At that particular time, it was a, it was a big, big ordeal for him. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? He had one of the yes. most powerful black comedians, one of the most powerful yeah. comedians, period, right. could not get work. So he was, he was working where? 
one-nighters, coffee shops, open mics. And Ali can contribute to that much more, uh, you know, because sure. Ali was with him at that time. But Ali happened to be one of those unique guys who was working both sides of the street. Why do you think that was? I think probably because Ali's act at that particular time was more easily digested by the general market. And what I, what I mean by, by that. By white people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the folks who were booking those particular clubs. He didn't make them uncomfortable. At all. And Bernie I, Mac, you know, just, whoever he, uh, you, know, right. what, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of person, whether white or black or anything else, Bernie Mac will make you uncomfortable. He could. But, but, I, think, <laughs> but I think that's the nature of comedy. I, no, look, I, you, you know you're I mean? preaching to the choir here. Right. So I just happened to, uh, you know, bump into these guys and they say, hey, listen, I can't get booked. And then when I started looking around the country, seeing that there was very few places at all, not, not just in Chicago, but period. One thing led to another where they were just like, can you give me a hand? We'd love to do just a showcase show on a weekend. Producing. Yeah, yeah and let me, and yeah. I didn't know at the time that's what, you, that's what I was doing. Right. And that thing did okay, enough to make us do it again. And we did it, you know, every weekend for about four or five months. And we got to a point where it was like, okay, this may or may not work. We right. didn't know what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Um, and then we had a weekend with Steve. That sort of made us say, well, you know what? There's a business here. And then we ran with it from that point. So would you say that it, for most practical purposes, you were the first sort of um, regular black stand-up comedy club? There were rooms around the country. I, I like to think that there were, I like to think that we were the first to put it all together. In other words, to have top flight operation, top flight comedians on par with any other comedy club, be it Caroline's, be it Improv, be it, Right, Whoever. you used that model. What, yes. what model inspired you? I say improv was probably the one. I like the idea when, when you started, you knew there were, how many of your acts really couldn't work uh, mainstream clubs? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, let me look at the list. Probably 90% of them. Right? Yeah. So you'd have like Ali was working those rooms, Lance Crowther would be working those sure, rooms. Yeah. Um, who else would Tommy. I work in? Yeah. Tommy, Tommy Davidson. Actually, it was a bidding war for Chris Rock at the time. Yeah. And we beat him. We beat Improv was where he normally worked. And then we, I think we outbid him at that particular time, which is real interesting because the audience that he... Early we, 90s. So early that was 90s. Chris in the, you know, you know, he was sort of wandering then. Before Bring the Pain. That was probably was right, right after right Saturday before Night Live. Right, yep. SNL, and he was sort Absolutely. of like regrouping as a comic. Yes. And, and building who he was. Absolutely. Yep. And you had him over the improv. We had him here. Well, you know, we had a room in Detroit for four years, too. So we had him between Detroit and Chicago. But if you looked at that audience, that audience was completely different than the audience you would have had at uh, improv. Right. So, I mean, well, then you were probably somewhat responsible for his, you know, connecting to what became a fairly specific black identity. I think, I think so. I think, I think. Because he, he, he was working it out. Sure, he could have. But I think I would like to think that that contributed to what he was doing at that time and working out that material. He still does the same material, right? You know but, what I mean. But I think that you know after SNL, where he you know he came up in in just mainstream comedy, absolutely. Clubs, but you know, defining his point of view on race, you know, that happened later. It did, and I don't know that that could have happened without performing for specifically black audiences. Well, and if you think about uh, that, what was it, Bring the Pain? Was that the first one and he did it out of D.C. or whatever that was? That, that was the big one. Boom. Yeah, that was the big Look at that one. audience. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. but but still, I yeah. mean, I, I do think that there's, you know, 
Can you cite a difference between a black and a white audience? I think Ari Spears says that the best. So when he says that, you know, a white audience applauds effort and a black audience doesn't give a damn about effort. (laughs) They want to see, they want you to bring it. You know what I mean? It's like. Put on a show. Right. There's no, because I think that's cultural. It's like, you've got to bring it. When you get the opportunity, you may not have this opportunity more than once. Yeah. You don't get sort of these second and third and fourth chances you can't go in with that mindset so if i'm going to pay if i'm going to come here and i'm going to support you then we expect it and the guys who didn't do that you know will suffer so but you know in a white audience i think is much more giving in that way because you know it's art takes time they're trying to develop them their act give them a chance all that that doesn't really that doesn't really fly as well i i don't know if that's uh i mean i I certainly am uh, guilty of that. Sure. But I still think that any audience would uh, you know, prefer, there's a type of audience that's sort of like, we came for a show. We didn't came, come for you to, to sort of figure out <laughs> what you're going to do. Right. We put on good clothes. Sure. Uh, you know, why are, we, why are you testing whatever you're fucking trying to do? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, but I, I wonder what, you, but I think also the white expectation of a black performer is different. Absolutely, it's different. Now, one thing we tried to do, at all jokes aside, was not to define what black was. So, so we might have a comedian. That was an agenda. Absolutely. And what does that mean to you? Well, that, that was very important to me because even within our own culture, yeah. this notion of what's supposed to be black. Now, is that Def Jam? Well, in some cases. Yeah. Maybe improv. So, right. so, so. So just because a person is black doesn't mean it's got to be a bunch of motherfuckers and a bunch. Doesn't you know, have to be a menstrual it show. It doesn't. It could be intelligent. <laughs> sure. It could be smart. It could be oddball. It could be way out there. Uh, it could be a bobcat type act. I mean, it could be whatever it is. Did you see that type of diversity? Sure, but they weren't really given as much an opportunity as like a lot of the other acts. And 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 another thing that happened during that time was Def Jam became. Huge. It exploded yeah. right around that time, 93, 94. There was a certain type of act that was sort of, you know, that... that yeah, it became uh, a hackneyed sort of uh, It was thing. that. So that, there were yeah. guys who were not like that. Right, and they had a fight against then that. They got, they, then they've got even fewer opportunities. Right, well, yeah, here they are. They, you know, they can't get work in white rooms. Right. And now the, the black rooms are so geared right. towards that type of... Exactly. That, and that's a way heightened... It is. Aggressive performance style. Absolutely it is. So so I worked really hard to try to try to have as many diverse acts as I possibly could, even well, within the black culture. Well that's magnanimous as a as a as a business owner and sure. as somebody who wants to to create a, a creative space. But what are your personal feelings about how blacks were represented in deaf comedy? I think it was good for for what Def Jam stood for. You know what I mean? So in other words... Um, what do you see that as being? Well, I was sort of balls out. Yeah, you know what I mean? You. Have it. Yeah. Now, for me, that's not to say some acts obviously I liked, some acts I didn't. Now, the shortcoming is there's guys who went up on Def Jam, say, and had seven minutes worth of material and became a star, which didn't work for me because if you were a headliner, you need to do 45 minutes to an hour. Right. And also... If you're going to do, you know, the blue material, okay, you know, for seven minutes, 
but doing it for a half an hour, 45, with no real act right. is a problem. Gratuitous. And- right. So, so what young cats started doing was looking at Def Jam and trying to develop their act and, and that was the wrong. They should have been watching Ellen DeGeneres. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they should have been watching somebody complete. They weren't ready for that just yet. They didn't have an act to, to do it. Yeah. So, oh, I'm listening to Richard Pryor. It's like, yeah, that's genius right there. You know what I mean? You need to, you need to be building something. Sure, yeah. So, so that was a distortion. But, but overall, the exposure, the opportunity, uh, what that represented um, far outweighed any of the shortcomings when you see the cats that started at your place you know who were you most surprised by in terms of the evolution of their uh creativity i can't say i'm really surprised i i'd like to think i saw it you know what i mean i don't want to look like i'm this savant or anything but i just felt like you had a good eye for talent yes yeah. so when i see jamie in 91 I'm like, there's something really special about that this person. right after Living Color? That's right before. Oh, really? But his whole act was everything that he's good at now. Yeah. Characters, singing. Yeah. The whole thing. And so, when you saw him or when he was a kid, it, was, it must have been sort of like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like I liken it to athletics. Yeah. When you see a young kid, like yeah. now, you can tell who's good yeah. in ninth grade. You yeah, can yeah, say yeah, that yeah. kid has the potential yeah, to do yeah, something yeah. special. Um, but, you know, there's, and then the other thing is there's opportunity where only so many guys are going to make it. I'm talking about when you say make it, quote unquote. Yeah, there's only about 10 the big ones. at any and given time. General, yeah. And it's always been that way. Yeah, and it, and it is. What happened to uh, the business? Um, a couple things happened. How One, long did it run? 91? Two through nine, well, 2000, if you okay. run the whole okay. thing. And then we did like that four years in Detroit. But, but oddly, um, you know, that, like we said before, you know, for comics, that was the difficult time. Yes. From where I was standing, like when I came, yeah, into for comedy, mainstream comedy, yeah, uh, for 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 maybe general white comedians, because the the comedy club chains and yeah. basic cable television had just sapped the hell out of everything. Yes. And when I got when I first started working in the early nineties, all you had was a bunch of uh, comics going, "It's over." Yeah, and that's when you started. Yeah. Yep. Why 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 was it so different? It was it was it was sort of like a decade behind. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. And so so then. The black comedy circuit went through the same boom and bust. But that, only in the 90s. Yes, through the 90s. So by the end of the 90s, you know, you had so many rooms doing stand-up. You had the same TV overexposure. You had um, you, you had the same sort of cycle. Right, that I get went it. Through, you know what I mean? We went from sure. 400 clubs to 250 around the country. What was the struggle that you had with mainstream comedy clubs in terms of your business? As far as booking acts? Well, um, ultimately, like, I mean, I assume you wanted to branch out. You wanted to franchise. Sure. You know, was there, was there obstacles? Well, a couple of things happened to me personally. Uh, sort of, we went through this whole boom. So yeah. you had a situation where the Bernies and the DLs and the Steves and the Rocks, they, they were gone. But the, the audience still wanted to see them in this up-close, personal way. Yeah. And if it wasn't them. They didn't care about who the new person was coming up. They they had no interest in that. When is Bernie coming back? Call me. When is Cedric coming back? So the call the, me. the support that you had built up when these guys were nobody had, was diminished because now they Absolutely. had their stars. Yes, they were gone. So the evolution was well, why not? Why not go after the entire market? Because at that time, every club in the city had closed, with the exception of Zanies, which was a hundred seat room. Yeah. So in Chicago at that time, say two thousand. Yeah. You had one room. Yeah. Zanies. Yeah. A hundred seater. Yeah. That's bizarre. It is bizarre. You got six rooms in New York. You got seven or eight in LA. 
you you only have one. So I said, well, shit, I'm gonna go after whole market. Right. Why not? Why yeah. can't I book Ray Romano and why can't I book right Mark? Why not? I mean, why you know did nobody come to see him? So I tried to do that, and I tried to move north of the Chicago River because I felt like that would be a centrally located. It's only a mile. Where and was half. your old club? Was it in South a, South like, Loop? So right below Congress, one thousand South Wabash. Well, that was a sort of transitioning neighborhood okay. when I went in there. Yeah. Now it's not. I mean, it's a totally gentrified right. neighborhood now. But at the time, it was right. So so then when I made this move. That's when I recognized how segregated Chicago was. I didn't know that until I did that. I honestly yeah. didn't know. I, I knew there was a South and a West, right? But I didn't know. I didn't know the intensity of the North versus South, and so you were sort of naive in that. Like Chicago's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a very, it's a balanced town. Sure. It's a, it's, you know. Yeah. No. I mean, listen. I mean, if you're a black person. You know you're gonna meet some resistance. I already know that. Right, got just, that. Just, but this was not the city that you thought was, that was in. It was well, I knew it was here, but I'm saying it, the intensity of it was beyond what I had. Well, like what happened? Soon as I got there, they said, "Were well, you from the South Side?" Yeah, which Who's means the, something. The the general the area, business community. Yeah, business community. Right. Now, well, what's this guy gonna do? Right. So it's sort of like, well, I, I figure I'll get that resistance just right in general. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, here's who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm planning on doing. Right. Mm, we don't really want that. <laughs> well, you don't it? want what? Yeah. There, there was two comedy clubs within a half a mile radius of here. Improv was here. Funny Firm was here. I don't know if you remember, but they were right around the corner from each other. Yeah. So we're going to do some of the same things. Well, that's when that sort of thing raises its head and says, well... If you're black and you own a bakery, you own a black bakery. Yeah. You don't just own a bakery. Right. You see what I mean? So yeah. so it's like, okay, that's so, going to mean X, Y, Z, and you're not even supposed to be. So in their the minds, they're like, well, then we're going to have lines of black people. Right. And all black people are the same. Sure, in their minds. So it's like Ali is the same as Bernie. Is the same. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a but second. But even, even with the pitch that you just want to open a comedy club. Right. And you could show that to them on paper. Sure. They didn't trust you. Right. They they didn't think, yeah, they didn't think I was capable of doing that. Now, mind you, we had ran for eight years without one incident. None. Not inside the club, not outside. The, that's unprecedented in a comedy club. But, I mean, we were that aggressive about, because we know one incident. In a black club. You could be out of business because you're only getting one chance at this. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's so, okay. We, so you were vigilant. Absolutely. And, we had to be. And, but how did that manifest itself? Um, as, at our club? Yeah. So we had to be, we had, obviously we had security. We had people who, we didn't tolerate heckling. We didn't, we had rules, regulations. This is how we're going to operate inside and outside. Because if you, if you, if there was a broken bottle in the street, which we had absolutely nothing to do with, we would get blamed for that broken bottle being out there. So we had we had to clean the street for one block. From 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 when we left at the end of the night, we we examined the whole street so that because you knew that like, that. So you were always conscious Absolutely. of the fact yeah. that if something goes down in a one mile radius, sure. of a black owned <laughs> business, the whole community is going to get blamed. You need for to it. be thinking about it. <laughs> you need to be conscious of that. <laughs> that's you do. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way it is. Sure. So now, what, what was the fight? How long did the fight go on, or, or was that Almost, the end of it? No. Yeah. It. It. But it, it went on for man. Was it close to two years? By the time it all ended, and by the, by the end, you know, I was out of time. Like you know, time, money, energy. 
And they just, they, they just, they, uh, what, they made you jump through hoops for no reason? Yeah, they keep it going. It's a little bit different in Chicago now, but at that point, anybody could protest your license, and they keep dragging it on. It's, it's really a bizarre situation. Did you try, did you have to try to align yourself with the people in local government sure. and do all that? Yes. You have to do that. So some community members were for me, some were against. In your community or here? In the, in in the North community Side. I was moving to. So, um, yeah, so so yeah, you had to fight that whole battle. But, in, but at some point, did you realize like they're just dragging this on it? Oh yeah, I knew that all the way. Yeah. So so, but then it, can, it gets to a point where you say, well, even if I opened, yeah, this is gonna be hell, right? Because every single thing I do, I'm gonna have to manage it. You know what I mean? Now, that's where the businessman comes in, where I wasn't uh, as good a businessman as I should have been. Uh-huh. It might be the moral and social thing to do. But I should have probably stopped a long time ago and started looking for another room. And say, okay. Oh, just like me, you yeah. know, stop the fight and find a middle area. Forget where, about it. And try to pull people to where you built it. Just go somewhere else. Right. Where I could exist and still do what I want to do. And That's do you, the thing. Why do you think you didn't do that? Because I was still learning. You know what I mean? I was still learning what it Were you idealistic? Were you stubborn? Were you, I think so. I think, I think. Were you fighting a fight? That, yes. That, I was fighting a fight culturally speaking. Right. Not from a businessman's thinking. Right. You know right. what I mean? So right. this business at all costs thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Rosa Parks said on the bus, I'm going to fight this shit until the very end. So that's what you got. Yeah. That's not the thing to do. <laughs> you got to do it once though, right? I guess. No, I find myself in those positions still to this day where it's like, what should I be fighting for? What should I let go? Which one's cultural? Which one's business? It's it's, it's a juggling act. Well, that's because I, I think as as somebody who has had experience, you know, in in sort of you know pursuing you know what the freedom of 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 uh, business in this country and just the sure. nature of America, you know, is is supposed to be about, but also carrying, you know, the legacy. Yes, of of the the racial struggle. Sure, it's, I, I it's got to be an amazing uh, kind of confusion. No, it's it's um, it's a really really delicate balance. And you know what's interesting about it was when Obama's giving a talk in the Rose Garden, and the guy interrupted him. Yeah, it wasn't a press conference. He was talking. Yeah, like every president does, comes in, says what he's saying, and he's gone. Yeah, and the guy just interrupts him. Yeah, I mean, just shouts out. Or, or when he's giving State of the Union, and that yeah. guy Liar. shouts out. That guy, yeah. yeah. So I go, how does he do it? You know what I mean? Like, he's a master at maintaining that sort of persona and the mentality and the difficulty of doing that to say, I've never seen that before. But yeah, it's yeah. like, man. <laughs> I mean, even the president's got to do it. Right. So do you, you know, in your mind, in terms of, you know, not just show business, but culturally, yeah. uh, in in light of your experience, do you think that that things are obviously better for individuals? Sure. But I mean, you know, in the struggle that you have around cultural versus business and everything else, right. has there been growth? I mean... Yeah, it is. I and and and, and, I, and I always like to say this. Listen, nobody owes me shit. I right. mean, I, I don't. I don't operate like that. Yeah, I can be successful. I got all the tools. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've got all the opportunity. Right. Um. So, I don't hold on to it. It's so just you don't a, think that the game is fixed? Well, I think the game's probably fixed. Yeah. But, I mean, 
you well, can find yeah, you your still, way. Still, you can find your way. Yeah, right, and right, you right. can find your niche and you can find you. You may yeah, yeah, have to yeah, work yeah. twice as hard. You may have to go through a lot more, you know, more hurdles or whatever the case might be. Yeah. But it's still doable. Yeah. So so that's cool. And I'm okay with that. I'm yeah. not I don't hold that, you know, I'm not bitter, angry. Right. It's more of an observation. Right. That, you know, there should be a level of respect paid to this man. Right. For who for the office that he's holding. Sure. sure. So for a minute you go, hey, you know, that guy should, you know, somebody should pull him in the back or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, well, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just yeah, can't. For the same reason you had to clean up those bottles. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be in a world of trouble if that was to happen. You know, yeah. Then he'd be angry. Yeah. Then he'd be bitter. You know, then he'd be blaming folks for something they had nothing to do. You know, it's, it's a whole chain of But things. there is a different standard of judgment. Sure. And that's okay. It's just the way it is. Yeah. It is, and he still can be successful despite that. Okay, so let's go back to Ali and John to talk about what Raymond had to say, and then we'll get into a little bit more about Chicago, and I will talk to Ali about Pootie Tang, because I've talked to Louie about it, and i gotta talk to, uh, I got to talk to Ali about it. Now you were in Chicago this whole time. Now, did you see Ali? Did you see the 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 landscape of comedy change, and and what what kind of impact did it have on that? Well, I mean, you know, there was there was this period when right in the, uh, there, there's an area in Chicago called River North. Yeah. Um. So in like a one mile radius, there was the Improv. Uh, there was a big club at the time, the Funny Firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Zanies. And then in a in a hotel not too far away from there was Catch a Rising Star. Right. I so remember on, that. on a Saturday night, all of those clubs would be full for two, sometimes three shows. Uh, the Funny Firm had two floors, so they had a they had a main room and then they had a secondary satellite room upstairs, and they were running five or six shows. Yeah. On a Saturday night, uh, so that that period of time, you know, comedy was booming. But how exclusionary was it for well, real? You know, like was was Monique playing in those rooms? No, was Bernie playing. No, in those Bern, rooms? Bernie didn't get booked in those rooms. Monique didn't get booked in those rooms. I mean, you know, at, at the time, Sin, uh, not Sinbad, but uh, uh, Sinbad Steve got Harvey. booked everywhere. Yeah, I know. Sin, <laughs> Sinbad was a uh, he was a touring headliner at the time. Yeah, because that was after his uh, uh, star search. Right. So he was doing you know theaters. Right. Uh, you know he was actually right. on that level. But at Steve, the time. not Steve either. Yeah, Steve, Cedric. not yet. Yeah. So none of those guys, you know, so they didn't really have a place where they were getting booked as headliners. Which Maybe on were. some road clubs. Right. I mean, if you go down like to, to Louisville, I like guess there's a guy named Tom Sobel, you know, Sobel, if you did yeah. some of his road clubs, <laughs> yeah. you know. You can uh, still do those if you want. If you ever want to get back in, man. <laughs> you can get there. Sure. And then up in uh, Minneapolis, there was a circuit up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I forget the name of the club. Brave New there. Dudley Riggs. He yeah. had his room. So, yeah. uh, you know, there was some road clubs where you get, but in the cities, it was a lot, uh, it was a lot tougher. Was there bitterness? Well, I mean, I know you can't speak for everybody, but but the way I, I talked to, to to Raymond about it, and you, you know, he was really. It seemed to me that you know he wanted to compete with those clubs, but he also wanted to give opportunity where opportunity was deserved and owed, and 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 uh, you know, take care of these comics that were not necessarily appreciated. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't I don't really think of it as bitterness because 
uh, there had not been an alternative. So there was really nothing to judge it against. Right. You know, when you're getting a particular treatment, you know, you just think it's as good as it is. And then when it's you're able to compare it to something else, when all jokes aside came along then the black comics were like, well, fuck the funny firm. I'm yeah. not, I'm going to all jokes aside. <laughs> yeah. You know, they love me over there. Yeah. But there you were know. black clubs. Yeah. I mean, there were black clubs to, yeah, sc- scattered. I mean, there were black nights and, and the nights like Bernie Mac made his entire nut doing uh, doing shows in rooms that were not comedy rooms. Like he would get a Thursday night or a Wednesday night and he would do a comedy show and bring in a lot of the black comics and it would just be that night and then they'd go back to doing whatever else they did some other night of the, the week. The first time I ever saw Bernie Mac was was spectacular because it was it must have been 1995 and I went to the Aspen Comedy Festival right. and they brought Bernie out and Cedric and I think two other black dudes and right. that, and, 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 in the snow right. in Aspen. <laughs> and that night that I saw you know, Bernie, right. it, it was watching him perform in Aspen. It was it, not just like a fish out of water thing, but right. it was like the, the, he brought something that no one had ever fucking seen before. Right. I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it before because you know he was very black. Yes. You know, and right. in Aspen, and it's and it's literally <laughs> skiers, right. the industry, and I just never seen anything so honest, so fucking, uh, you know, focused, angry, right. but right on the fucking money. I right. mean, it was unbelievable. And I'd love to seen his apre ski wear. Yeah, oh no, there was no skiing. And I mean, like, and you got yeah. you got to think that at at that time, you're talking about '95. I was on the road with Bernie probably from about '91 to actually about 97 so when you saw him in 95 um he was actually touring theaters right (laughs) selling out you know three four five thousand seat houses with regularity but to that audience he was a virtual unknown and but you could feel all that momentum i mean you know he was you know not fucking around right And now, what, when you decided to do this thing, what was it that you were? What, as a documentarian, you know, in remaining objective or what, what, whatever your goal was, what was it you thought that this would would show? I mean, you know, outside of just the story, I mean, what did you learn from it? Well, I grew up in Chicago, in Chicagoland, had worked there for many years in TV there too, so I knew it was a very, very segregated U.S. city. More so than, uh, you know, I think it's the number one, it's the largest segregated city in the U.S. I know that, like, you know, like even with Ray and I, when we walk out of our editing room downtown, (laughs) he would go left to the south side and I would go right to the north side, right? And that's how it works in Chicago. So I thought this is an opportunity for me because I'd worked at the PBS station there and done all kinds of documentaries about the projects and all that. I thought here's a way for me to illustrate that with comedy. Uh, I love comedy stories. I don't make docs very often. Every eight years, I do something like this, and then I go deep into debt, and then it takes me another eight years before I want to do one again. So I don't consider myself a documentarian. I consider myself someone who does entertainment docs. And I realized, hey, Ray had the star power. I looked at the footage that he had. I, I called Brian, who's sitting here in the room with us today, and we just said, you know, we could put this together. There's enough material here, but we've got to do it for a price, and we'll make it smart, and we'll make it a little bit edgy, and uh, we'll kind of, you know, get down on the city we all love, because Ray loves Chicago, but we wanted to smack their hand a little bit, because we also felt this is still going on today. I think Raymond would have trouble opening that club in that white entertainment district now. There are not a lot of black-owned businesses in that area. There are businesses that blacks work at, but in terms of ownership, no. I can't think of a single, and you know, we put it in the movie. We we tracked this down. There wasn't a single black-owned business north of that Chicago River. Not not even the blues clubs. That's right. (laughs) So it it was a way to do that. 
That doesn't seem right. Not even the there's no black owned blues club. And and the really great black blues clubs that were deep south Chicago like Teresa's, yeah. white people don't go down there. Right, yeah. And if you can imagine anymore this mark, or ever. Well, ever, really, unless you're interested in another culture, which most Chicagoans really aren't. You'll sit on a bus in Chicago directly across from a black person and you two will never talk. There'll be but no it's exchange. interesting. Am I wrong in thinking that you know outside of the South that Chicago is really one of the oldest Black communities in, in the states? That I mean, you know, when when Blacks left the South, I guess in the 30s and 40s, I mean that Chicago was Chicago, yeah, Detroit, and yeah, Cleveland, yeah, the, the, Detroit the, the, and Cleveland. the Mississippi Black people. Uh, it's all about the highway, so it depends on you know, on where you are. Like the the Texas Black people came to L.A., the Mississippi, Alabama Black people went to Detroit and Chicago, and the Georgia, the, the Georgia, North Carolina. Black people went to New York, right? You know, and right. DC. Yeah. So it's like, what's the major highway? The ninety-five, the fifty-seven, and the ten. <laughs> the one right over there. That's where they went. <laughs> Where's your family come from? Uh, my uh, grandmother is from. Um, Gosh, uh, where's Memphis? That's Tennessee. Tennessee, and my dad's from Louisiana, and my uh, mom was born in Chicago. So, you, but you grew up your whole life in Chicago. I was a Chicago. And kid. what kind of family? What What did your old man do? Uh, he was a hustler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a, in a phrase, he was a hustler. He, yeah. You know, he opened a couple of businesses. You know, he sold candy. Yeah. You know, made clothes. I yeah. think he played in a band for a while. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, yeah. Uh, you know, like what, what did he play? Uh, congas for Al Green or something. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the story. That, that's that how I the hear. story goes. Yeah. <laughs> that one time yeah yeah so when you now it, chicago today because i was just there it's very interesting it seems like neighborhoods that were considered bad you know i.e black at one time they 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 get colonized by hipsters who are nervous for a while and then they bring the property values up and then all of a sudden that neighborhood is gone that you know whatever history it had you know in terms of the black community gets sort of pushed aside and I think that when I talked to uh, to Raymond, you know, he said that you know that kind of stuff happens a lot, and that you know even the neighborhood that the uh, the the all jokes aside was in originally, right. which he characterized as a fairly shitty neighborhood, you know, even, at the on time. any standard, yeah, is now not even a black neighborhood. Well, anymore. now now I was just there like a week ago. Now uh, Columbia College in Chicago has brought up tons of space down there, so it's almost like a university campus where the club used to be. Uh, Roosevelt was it University. Bad? Uh, it was just black. You know, it wasn't <laughs> you know, even it wasn't just, even that bad when Ray was there. It wasn't like you're going to get mugged. There, there wasn't a lot going, and not not to mention the fact that the uh, downtown Chicago uh, there was a police station like right at 11th and State. So you know, well, yeah. I mean, it was just it just was not a very populated area. And the uh, there was a mission that uh, that was also down in that area. So like I said, it wasn't populated. There wasn't right. a lot of commerce, but it was, it was more desolate that, okay. than bad. Well, I think that his point was, maybe it wasn't that, maybe I'm mischaracterizing uh, what he said. He said that, you know, in order to run a business, you know, even as a, a black man in a black neighborhood, the type of care you had to put in to managing that business on the streets right. and making sure no shit went down around was, was you know, far and above the, the call of what a, a white business would have to do because they're yeah. looking to shut you down. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you, you, you actually have to know you got to know the people you got to know who's on this street you got to know who the shit starters are you know sometimes you got to know it's like you know are the drug dealers out here at this time i actually got to become friends with those guys yeah, yeah. they got to know don't fuck with me i'm cool i'm not gonna fuck with you you yeah, you yeah. actually have to make it's not it's not that you have to make a deal per se yeah but you do have to have relationships with a certain element yeah. when you move into certain neighborhoods but you know i mean ray did something i don't i still don't know why we couldn't put this in the movie because i didn't think it would cause anybody trouble but i could be wrong 
Yeah. He used off-duty Chicago cops. They're not allowed to do that kind of work. Right. That's totally against them, but Wait, he used a them. Chicago court, uh, city official doing something illegal? Right? I know. It's <laughs> shocking, huh? Shocking. <laughs> but but there's no record uh, <laughs> history of that in Chicago. But, the, but one of the things that's interesting about that, he never had a problem. I mm. mean, not one. In the entire time he was in that neighborhood, not a single arrest, no tickets for anything, no violence, because the Chicago cops took care of him. And he had to, you know, he had to help them out. So when he went to apply for his liquor license to move north, he had an, an impeccable record, which should have just sailed through. But then, of course, the people in the in the white entertainment district, once they figured out, oh, wait a minute, now we know what's coming in here, then they do a standard technique where they stall your license. So what year was this? I mean, it's just so people know. Uh, let's see. He tried to move up north in 1998. And it wasn't resolved until 2000. He started spending money in 1998 to open the club in the white entertainment district. By the time it all got settled and he won the court battle, it was 2000. But they had they broke him because he's still paying on the rental of this space, which you can imagine the square footage rental up there was huge. It's like he, a divorce. He built a bar in. He yeah. did the plumbing. He did yeah. the electric. And another thing we don't really mention in the movie, and, and I probably shouldn't do it because Ray says he'll get killed and his kids will end up in a dumpster. It's interesting who ended up taking over the bar uh, after he had put in all the, so all that, the features. So that information will just get him hurt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we just, I don't know who they are, but apparently they're tough guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently. You, you kind of know who they are. But, uh, yeah, so I mean, they, 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 they crushed it. Um, now here's the thing, you know, me and the other producer, Reed Brody, Jewish guy from Chicago, very connected guy, you know, Reed said to me, John, I wish Ray had called me. I could have gotten that club open for him. And, and he probably could have. But what Ray doesn't say in the movie, but he says whenever we talk, is that, yes, in Chicago, he could have handled that with a check or with some cash. Yeah. Maybe as little as four or five grand, right, to the right alderman. But he knew that if they're going to bust only one guy this year, they're going to bust the black guy. Because that was going on all the time for white guys. I mean, this is part of doing business. I mean, when I first moved to California, I was almost arrested in Burbank because my wife and I put an addition on our house. And because I'd been growing up in Chicago, I got the white envelope ready with the three, the three $100 singles. So when the Burbank City Inspector came, I said, hey, I want to pay you and your family a tribute. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, I just want to give you a tribute, man. He said, where are you people from? I said, well, I'm from Chicago. He went, oh, Oh, okay. He says, that'll get you in jail here. <laughs> but I was just so used to it that that is how it works there, the city that wakes, you know. Did you have experience with that? I mean, in working for people? I mean, it was, it, it was you were just a... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's entirely different as you're coming in as just a performer. But, yeah. but the, the reality of having to, to make deals in that city is not unusual in right. the least. And, and like I said, I mean... You know, he he thought maybe he could be upstanding about it, and that was just the wrong way to handle that thing. But I, I, I'm not assuming that it's any different for anybody, but it's absolutely compound and complicated if you're black. Right. Well, that's what. So he wanted to play by the rules. It's like a, it's a, it's a classic horrible story where I'm going to do things right and I'm going to give. Fuck. I mean, Ali said it that when we were at Ebert Fest together, they were applauding Ray down there after he said, you know, and I was an upstanding moral person. I made the right moral decision. And I think Ali said something like, "They're applauding you for your failure, man." <laughs> And you could have had a club open, <laughs> and the yeah. comics still could have a place to work. But yeah. no, you got principles. Yeah, you got to be <laughs> moral and, and, high and, ground. And, 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 he, and I believe Ray does. I think he still does. You know, and it's tough to work in show business and have those principles. Now, on any given night, when you were working there uh, when you were starting out. 
Um, by that time, I, you know, I was I was years into the business by then. So, so you were in. Yeah, yeah, I was I was and working around. I, you, you know, I worked all the other clubs as well. So, and when you worked at uh, at at his club, I mean, what what was the night like? Who were there? Who were the acts mostly there? Oh gosh, man, who lived I, in the area? Uh, well, no, it wasn't that. It, there was certain acts like. Uh, uh, one of the hugest acts at that club was Simply Marvelous. Uh, you, you may or may not know her. I don't. Uh, Simply was from Louisiana. Uh-huh. And she would come in like two or three times a year. And she was just one of these women that absolutely killed in that club. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it was it was just huge. You know, Simply was in there. Uh, Shucky Ducky uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> used to play there. <laughs> Cedric the Entertainer was huge. He was he was doing a lot of dates there. George. Uh, AJ Jamal uh, used to come through. He did uh-huh. great. Uh, 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 George Wilborn. George Wilborn and and T to the motherfucking K, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> T K Kirkland, T K Kirkland, uh-huh. and uh, Hughley was there. Hughley was there. Yeah, all these when guys he was young through. and he was like pissed off. Yeah. He was great. <laughs> I mean, I watched that that HBO half hour with him where he's just like got that fire and he's like, <laughs> and it was like holy fuck. Yeah, but it's, it's those acts like T.K. Kirkland, man. Those are just the the sorts of acts that you weren't going to see, see anywhere. Place. You weren't going to see him anyplace what, else. It, what did he do? I don't know him. The dirtiest shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't film. know these guys. It bothers me. Well, it, they're all huge, and in, in, they yeah. have an audience, you know, a big audience. No, I'm audience. sure they do. Yeah. It just, I, it always, like, it, this is the thing that bothers me about knowing like, you know, when people tell me, you know, that if, if I have a black comic in here and I focus right. on, on blackness, that, you know, I'm doing something isolating or something dubious. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a whole world oh, shit, of man. black comics that, not, that no white people know. Some more? You, you never seen some more? No. Oh, shit. See? <laughs> like, and, like, I feel left out. Yeah. I mean, it's, I can't, it's and when you, when, when you discover it, Mark, as a white person, you're like, what an idiot I've been. I missed out on this. What do you want people to take away from this? I mean, what? What do you hope to, uh, you know, when somebody watches this, like like somebody like me, is it about me saying like, holy shit, I had no idea. There were all these comedians I didn't know. Is it to, you know, for someone to say like, oh my God, Chicago's still racist. Oh, that's a sad story. I wish that was open still. What what what, what was your intention? Well, well, sort of three things. It's a cautionary tale for young black entrepreneurs. That was one of the goals because Ray was a business guy, really. Right. You know, Ray, right. is, he, Ray he, isn't yeah. a funny guy. Yeah. He's a business guy. You know, he said to me one day, it could have been any business he was going to find something that he was going to make his own that he was going to do the ray lambert way it happened to turn out to be comedy but even the people he partnered with to do it they weren't you know particularly interested in comedy the one guy never left his job at the bank yeah mary was a, a person from finance the, the the woman that he partnered with mary Lindsay. so this was just the thing that they settled on so one of the stories is it's a cautionary tale for young black entrepreneurs mm-hmm. you don't just have to be smart about the business you have to deal with this other issue in america called race the other thing was i wanted to make a fun doc something funny and expose my friends to hey i'll bet you guys didn't know about this world yeah look at how funny this is look how what a rich cultural existence this life is and you're going to laugh and you're going to learn something and uh, I can't think of what the third reason was those two were big enough and Ali did you meet Chris in Chicago or did you meet him later I met Chris in uh, New York Uh huh. yeah um, this is about 84 85 something like that uh, I met Chris he was still doing open mics at uh, Comic Strip and Catch a Rising Star up on uh, 78th State right. of New York sure. yeah, so that's when I met Chris out there and you met Louis on Chris's show. I met Louis on Chris's show. I didn't know him before the show. Yeah. And you and how are you? Are you and Louis uh, get along now? 
Uh, I haven't spoke. I, I, you know, this is so weird, man. This honestly, I almost feel like when I, I watched your episode, you and Louis. Like, I almost feel like I don't. Honestly, I don't know whether Louis uh, uh, it likes me or dislikes me. I'm not sure uh-huh. uh, because it was all shit that had a lot to do with Pootie Tang. Well, uh, that's what, what, what's uh, you know outside of this conversation. If you want, I, I, I'm curious about it because you know, I mean, I did I did a couple episodes with Louis, right? And, you know, we had our own issue, but, you know, I've known him forever and right. we're okay. But, I, I mean, I think a lot of people, when, you know, when I remember when he was doing Foodie Tang, I remember right. when he wrote it. Right. And I remember what he was going through with the studio. Right. And then I remember that, uh, you know, the, the story was that they took it away from him. True. And, and they said, here, Ali, you, may, you fix it. Uh, that's not entirely how that went. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I'm not uh, trying to sandbag you. No, either. no, no. I, and, yeah. and you're not. I got no problem telling the story. Uh, they did take the the movie away from Louis. Uh, but what what happened at the time was that um, um, Louis had gotten Pootie Tang into production as a byproduct of Chris doing Down to Earth with Paramount. Right. Right. So um, we had actually gone in because Chris produced it. Yes. Okay. So we had, we had gone in to do uh, some some re-edits on Down to Earth uh, with the White Brothers and Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Paramount at right. the time, was like, "Okay, so we got Pootie Tang sitting over here, and they had tested it; it hadn't tested well. Uh, they took it from Louis, and they were passing it around." And that's to- something that happens. I think <laughs> yeah, people yeah, should happens. know that it's right. like this is our money. You, this is what you did. Right. We don't like it. Exactly. We've got the footage. Thank you. Right. We own this movie. We're going to do what we right. feel like doing. Okay. So uh, Chris and I were actually doing some work on uh, Down to Earth, uh, doing some rewrites and and some work on that film. The third yeah. remake of, uh, down, <laughs> right. of right. what was it originally called? Uh, Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait. Right. Exactly. Uh, so while we were working on that, basically Paramount said, hey, since you guys are recutting the, you know, this other film, work on Pootie Tang. Right. So what happened with me is that uh, uh, Chris was about to go out and do press for for down to earth he had just been on oprah he was doing some other stuff so he's running around yeah they basically left me in a room with an assistant editor and it's like okay you had some ideas that worked on this other film work on this one now mind you they had already paid all of the go-to uh fix it edit guys you know they they came to me like okay we're not spending any fucking extra money on you you're in the room already so we've already tried to fix this and we think it's shit right yeah so what the fuck why don't you give it a shot so, you know, I mean, from my standpoint, it was like, OK, uh, you know, what do you do here? You know, creatively. Sure. I get that. Uh, you know, I, I understood where Louis was coming from. I had seen his two hour cut. Yeah. And I, and I understood the esoteric humor and, you know, and the whole thing. And on the other hand, just in a very practical sense, you know, the head of the studio asked me to do something for. Her. Right. And so, you know, as a guy, you know, making a living, trying to make a buck and being in the room anyway, you know, it's like, okay, you know, what, what, what to do here? Sure. You know, I'm working with Chris, the head of the studio is like, okay, fuck, they gave it to me. I didn't go and take it. That's right. So, you know, here's some ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we cut it and, and, uh, here, here's the story that I like to tell. Uh, originally Pootie Tang, the version that, I know of tested at a 13. Right. Uh, you can double check with Louis about that. Yeah. But tested at a 13. And then when we. Out of what? Uh, out of 100. Okay. And then when we recut it. <laughs> and, out of 14. Yeah. Yeah, when we recut it and put some shit in there and did some other stuff, we did some reshoots. Uh-huh. Uh, it tested at a 39. 
Right. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to I think that I may be one of the few people in the history of Hollywood yeah. to triple the score. Yeah. <laughs> of but, a film. But still in, have it in, come out under 50. <laughs> yeah. Right. I might be the only guy. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I get why creatively uh, I get why creatively Louis absolutely would have been pissed. Right. Uh, and, you know, and when you feel like that, it doesn't fucking make any difference to you. You know, who put their finger in the pie? It's not the pie that you were trying to bake, and that's right. And they, they you know, look what they done to my song, ma. Yeah, so, so yeah. I get it. You know, I'm, you know, I, I'm complicit. I understand that. Yeah. So if he's pissed about it, right? I, I, I understand but, why he was. But ultimately, the weird thing is, fucking people liked it. You right. know, and that's the other tough part is yeah. that sometimes people look at your shit and they, they don't, you know, they don't know that story. So they just like what they they like, and well, then you know. there's also like I, you know, there's people like it's a cult classic. People like it, but right. there's also people like I wonder what the original cut would have looked like. Right, right. Well, <laughs> what was a two hour cut like? <laughs> right. Because like if if I understand you know something about it, I mean, the, it, most of the changes were sort of narrative, and you added a voiceover, and yeah, and, I added a JB Smooth voiceover, and then we had to do a little extra a little extra picture. Probably a lot of things that that in terms of like I said, in terms of a narrative, yeah, he felt better not having them but at the same time you know louis vision is so out there right that it it took a lot of warming like where he is now right you know it took fucking 15 years of yeah. people seeing louis be funny yeah to be able to embrace this very loose narrative yeah you know jazzy style sure. and shit that he's doing now he right. had to warm people up that's it's, right it's fucking like listening to frank zappa for the first time right you know, right. He's like out there. So you're saying ultimately it's nothing personal, Lou. <laughs> you know, I had a job to do and yeah. Yeah. So it, it certainly was. Have you, you talked know. to him since then? Uh, the last time I saw Louie, I don't know. Yeah. It's like six or seven years ago. It, fe- it feels like it. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's just <laughs> interesting because I, I think it's one of those weird little moments where I think that, you know, in talking to Louie, that, you know, that whole experience was a lesson to him, you know, right. outside of what happened with I'd you. Like, I like to think that I helped. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to think that I was one of the nails in the coffin that made him go, fuck this shit. I'm doing I'm, my own thing. There, that's a good way to spin it. <laughs> I, I think for your own sake, that's probably the for, best yeah, way. For me, I like to think of it as, you know, as negative as this was, Louis, in the, in the larger scheme of things, it was a positive experience. It gave you the fortitude yeah. and the vision to go, fuck this shit. See, I'm yeah. doing my own thing. Now look at you. Yeah, and that's what Ali was thinking when he took that movie from me. He's like, I'm doing this for Oh, I, I didn't take the movie. No, I know that. <laughs> I'm now doing you're this in real trouble, right? right? No, 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 no. You didn't yeah. take the movie. But uh, in this film, in uh, John's film, uh, are you have a significant presence in there? Um, I, I was told after uh, I did my interview that that somehow I kind of became sort of a narrative thread, uh-huh. uh, which which was an odd thing to me because I wasn't one of the the comics at all. Jokes aside, who was one of the most popular comics? But you know, I was from Chicago. I knew a lot of the players, I knew the environment, and I knew all the stories. So a lot of those guys came in and out of town, but I was kind of there. So you were the historian. Yeah. Well, that's what I figured out later, right. is that Ollie actually knew more than anybody else we interviewed about you were the young. entire history of Chicago comedy. Right. I mean, you were doing this 12, 13 years before Raymond ever got to town. Right. Raymond knew everything from his arrival date forward, but didn't know much about what had happened before. And and like me, I, we were incorrect. And actually, 
I sort of wish I had some time to talk to you before I did the interview because I would have found I would have had better questions for him because yeah he is kind of the historian. Believe me, I know that feeling. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> I've done so many interviews. The pre-interview is very helpful, you know. Well, so, but, yeah, but, I never but, do but it. Every time we needed somebody to sort of take everything five comedians had said and sort of summarize it so you could walk away knowing exactly what the the main point of that scene was, I'd say let's go back to Ali's footage because right. that guy knows how to synthesize this stuff, crystallize it, say it in two sentences. What? And I realized, you know, if, if I probably would have had Ali narrate the film, we would have taken him out of the position of being uh, an interview. I would have asked him anyway if he'd be interested in narrating it. I mean, John Ridley turned out to be fine. And, John and, and Ridley. I'm, I'm going to narrate the bootleg version. There you yeah, go. There we go. <laughs> and, and, and John Ridley brought something to it, too. You know, I mean, and, and, and he knew the business. I, I tell you, I loved, I loved when Ridley did stand up. I, you know, like, you know, he's gone on to, uh, like both of you have, have gone on to much bigger careers outside of stand up. But he had a couple of great jokes, man. Yeah, no, really. He's just. He had uh, that one joke guy. about uptown cigarettes. Right. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't joke? remember that one. Well, it was a it was a cigarette that they they, they were very shameless about marketing specifically to black people. And he said, "I think the the angle was that I would have liked to have seen this 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 creative meeting." Where you know, a white executive walks into an office and goes, "You know, Bob, I can't help but notice there's still a lot of black people around." <laughs> That's hilarious. But I think also you and I share the fact that I, I get the sense that you were like, you know, in it very young and and a, and a really deep fan of it. Yeah. Of comedy. Yeah. So like being part of the community and sort of like, you know, having, you know, you know, knowing that, you know, you've got your the sketch element and then you've got, you know, a mainstream comedy and then you, you were able to, you know, kind of, you know, cross over into just the black rooms and everything right. else that, you know, there's a joy to that. To just sort of living that life, and then after at the end of all that, you know, after twenty years or whatever, you're like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> Let me yeah. tell you a story about that guy. And that's like that's our lives. It's the uh, it's why I do this show. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's that it's that thing where uh, you know, if you've been in it long enough, sitting in a room with comedians, yeah. And and then you start, you know, you, you start going through the stories. I forget the two big guys out of St. Louis. Uh, it was Zach and, and something. I, I forget uh, those two guys. Uh, uh, Mac, Zach and Mac. Yeah. You know, there was Zach and Mac were out of St. Louis. And, you know, and then there was a there was a Teddy Leroy. Yeah, uh, who was big out of Chicago? Uh -huh. It was a, a lot of guys, well, yeah. you know. And then you got everyone's got these myth these mythic stories. It's like I heard that he, you know. And then yeah. you just sit there like, oh no, that's not how that <laughs> went. What really happened was nothing. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> like you see, Boss, the show, yeah. the Kelsey Grammer yeah, show. Yeah. Like all of the shit that on that show. Yeah, that was Chicago when Harold Washington became wow. mayor. It was never more. Matter of fact, what's happening in the country right now with Barack Obama as president? Yeah. All this shit was that was in Chicago it's when Harold Washington became mayor. Isn't that interesting? Not only is comedy uh, from Chicago in the culture now, but the, the government is uh, Chicago government. Chica now. Man, Chicago is just in, in in terms of like a social polarization. I don't know that there's any major city in the country that that galvanizes that idea in, in that sort of way. I mean, that shit's more racist yeah. than than any other big city, more segregated than any other big city. Yeah. You know, absolutely much more political. Yeah. So it's just it's just a weird combination. It's, it's, it's like uh yeah, it's it, it it's uniquely American in its uh in its corruption and in its uh, you know, in the opposite of that. <laughs> you know I, what mean, I mean I mean look at the politicians out yeah. there. I mean just I mean we actually have a little section about that in the film. But it's, um, 
Yeah, it's it's always had this huge political thing because of the the original boss, Mayor Daly, the mm-hmm. original father there. Mm-hmm. I think he's the beginning of of the real corruption. And also Capone. I mean, that the mob influence in that city is like can, well, you know when we be... were researching where Ray's club was, yeah. Al Capone opened a store about four blocks south of Ray's. We were looking for another young man <laughs> that came to Chicago looking to make an imprint. We were thinking about going there. Yeah, that was good but, that you didn't uh, go there. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great there's a there's a great new Capone book out though where a guy really did his homework. It's fabulous and you find out a lot more he actually came to chicago if you can believe this with good intentions sure but when things didn't go right yeah old al had yeah he had to invent the mock when hitler didn't get into art school yeah exactly i mean you know the 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 messed up thing about what all jokes uh kind of represented it's this weird kind of idea because you know you have this a lot of times when you have uh it's like the black sitcom yeah you know black comedy on, on television is a business that gets passed around yeah you know uh, sure, at a time it was on the major networks. It was on NBC, ABC, CBS. And then at some point, you know, it got handed off to the secondary networks. Then it was on, you know, then it was big on Fox. Yeah. Then it was big on the WB. Then right. it got big on the UPN. You know, now, yeah, so, you know, then it got handed now off it's to all TBS Ty- for a second. Now it's just all Tyler Perry. Yeah, you know, so, and so now, <laughs> you know, TV land. Uh, yeah. you know a- after 30 years of being in business, now the Black Entertainment Television Network is actually doing black comedy now. They just started. Like, really? They were, just now? Yeah, they just, they just started. Like the black comedy business just got in the hands of black people after like 30 years (laughs) but but the thing about the odd thing about the 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 comedy side of it is that so out here in la you'll see you know there's a black night you know it's chocolate sundays at uh you know at the laugh factory and i forget what they call it at the improv improv. yeah yeah yeah. you know so they, they have a black night but that actual whole business of a club that caters to black comedians and that portion of the audience, like nobody picked it up right? and said, fuck it, they're not doing it, we can do it, we'll get the black people. You know, not like there aren't fucking white-owned barbecue fucking shacks and all Plenty. the blues clubs are yep. white people. Yep. So it's just interesting to me that, that nobody even picked that business up. To this day. Yeah, so even in Chicago now, there's a few rooms that, yep. are, that are doing it again, and I'm not suggesting that, that you know, they should be bought out, but... In terms of, you know, fucking even BET, that shit's owned by Viacom now. They're like, hey, there's some business in this black shit. Of course, always. So it's just odd and interesting. A white guy did the doc. Right. (laughs) You know, black shit makes money when white people get interested in it. You know, I mean, Except we, our doc. <laughs> we can do okay on our own. Yeah. Yeah, but fucking, you know, Def Jam is a Warner Music Group. And, you know, when fucking white people get interested in black shit, that's yeah. when there's really money in it. They're that's like, shit, if you made this money on your own mm-hmm. without the use of our fucking, you know, magnificent magic machine behind you, what the fuck could we do with it? Now, mind you, we're only going to give you 1% of this shit when we take over. That's right. But. Yeah, <laughs> the 1% of what we give you is going to be 10 times bigger than the fucking 100% that you had on your own. That's right. And I think that the big the big issue there was that that the the black uh, community never made their own magnificent magic machine. Well, th- no, you they haven't been allowed. But see, that's that's the that's <laughs> or embraced. the but but that's the point of this story. You right. can't fucking make it. That's right. You can't make your own magic magnificent machine because the white people are in charge of that shit. <laughs> They're the one that hands out the leases. The, they go, "No, nah, you can't have the machine. I'm no. sorry, sir. <laughs> sorry, you bring no, a white no, guy back with you. Right. We'll give him the 
the machine. Yeah, he, he gets keys to the machine. <laughs> hey, that's yeah. what that's what Raymond was trying to do. He was like, "Wow, I this is big. Right. I can get get greater access. I can be in a, a greater audience. It's not like white people don't enjoy this." Right. And then the machine goes, "Oh, yeah. oh wait, right. hold on, man." Hold on, you get a little out of control here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's not how this shit yeah, works. That, yeah, that is that is the 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 horrible truth about the magnificent magic machine. That yeah. would have been the greatest bite for the end of the movie, but you know. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. we'll keep it for this. So, why don't you tell us where people can get this movie now? Well, it's currently running on Showtime and will be for a, a long time. They have a two-year deal on it, but they give you what's called a second window. Mm-hmm. So in February of 2013, it's going to be on about 150 stations across the country, syndicated as a Black History Month special. That's always a good hook for selling black shows. It's coming out on DVD. Speaking for the machine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's coming out on DVD uh, October 2nd. Yeah. And it'll be available from Redbox, Family Video, all other rental outlets like Amazon, Walmart, uh, and eventually it'll end up in Kmart at some point. But uh, you can also go on the website of the company that's distributing it, Indican Pictures. So it'll get a pretty broad release. But October 2nd is going to be available for purchase on DVD. Yes. Awesome. And, and to the black people, just don't buy it in the barbershop or at the beauty salon. Don't buy the bullshit fucking ripped yeah. bootleg yeah, copy. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to cost that much. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, yeah. you know. Thank buy, you, Ali. Buy the real copy. That'll work. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm sure you just stopped a lot of sales. You there. know, you're like, it's going to be in Walmart. No, it's going to be in fucking Crenshaw. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the it's the Soul Plane story. Well, right. let me let me try Everybody's to re- seen it before. Let me, it let me try to reframe it a different way. White people, you should really watch this film because it's a good film. It'll teach you something about black culture, and and it'll it, it'll broaden your 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 point of view in your life. And it, and it's only available for purchase at places that sell it licensed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, you can't fellas. get it anywhere else. Right. Black people know better. Yeah. Thanks, fellas. Well, that's it. I, I definitely, it's a whole world I didn't really know about, and I was uh, I was happy to talk to those guys. It was good to see Ali again. Yeah, I remember him from back in the day. Pow! Look out! JustCoffee.coop. That's iced. I just shit my pants. Uh, get that at WTFPod.com, along with uh, anything you want WTF-related. Get on the mailing list. Check out the uh, episode guide. Get the app. Upgrade to the premium app kick in a few shekels buy some merch check my tour dates of which there are not many if any because of this uh because i'm shooting the show and uh let's all send out some good juju to uh the missing boomer i will uh rise above i do miss a guy but i think he's with the trickster coyote i don't think he's with the coyote that eats things that eats cats He's on some sort of vision quest, some sort of heroic journey. I'll have to tap into something to figure out what it is. But uh, I miss him. And I will talk to you on Thursday. Boomy lives. <laughs>